over John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. Let me pray. Father, teach us through your word today. May we sense that this is a personal word for each one of us individually. And as we read about this account in history, may we realize that you're a God who does miraculous things. If you've done it for this person in this text 2,000 years ago, you can do similar things for us today. We thank you, Lord, that we can read this scripture and that we can apply it to our own lives. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so last week we saw, beginning of chapter 4, that Jesus has entered Samaria, which is forbidden territory to Jews, uh, because it was considered an impure place. And he goes there in order to get rid of the Pharisees who are following him and uh, heckling him, I guess. And while he's there, he speaks to a woman, the woman at the well, and... Uh, she goes and tells the townspeople about Jesus, and they invite him to stay for a couple of days, and he does, and the result is that many people are converted to the Jesus movement. So from Samaria, he moves northward, and that's where we pick up in verse 43. Now remember, he came from Judea, from Jerusalem. He goes up into Samaria, and verse 43 says, Now, after two days, he departed from there, that's Samaria, and he went to Galilee. So from Galilee to, to uh, from Jerusalem to Galilee, straight through Samaria, the shortcut is about 75, 75 or 80 miles. Now the reason he goes there, in verse 44 says, for, this is why he goes up northward to Galilee, because Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Now, in John's Gospel, that applies to Jerusalem and Judea. He's been down in Jerusalem. He's been in Judea. He's from the house of Judah, isn't he? Remember? That's where Mary and Joseph, they went from Galilee. They went down to the province of Judea to be taxed. That's where Jesus was born. He lives there for a couple years. And uh, he's been back there. He's, been, he's cleansed the temple. The temple people reject him. He's talked to Nicodemus. Nicodemus has rejected him. And so he's been rejected in the southern kingdom. And so now he moves up to Galilee because he's not honored in the south. So when you look at verse 45, it says, So when he came to Galilee, look at this. The Galileans, what did they do? They received him. They welcomed him. Uh, now look at the basis upon welcoming him. him. <coughs> Having seen all the things that he did in where? Jerusalem. At the feast. That's the Passover feast. For they, the Galileans, also had gone to the feast. Now remember that there were three major feasts, which were called pilgrim feasts, where if you lived within a certain distance, you were required to go to those feasts. And Passover was one of them. And so a lot of people from the north came down to celebrate Passover. And it says, they, in verse 45, uh, they saw all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. Now when you go back to chapter 2 for a moment, so go back there, we see this. Um, 
And when you get back to chapter 2, look at verse 23. Chapter 2 and verse 23, right toward the end of the chapter. It says, Now when he was at Jerusalem at Passover, that's the feast, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he, had, which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. So here are people who see the signs, the miracles that he does at the feast in Jerusalem. Now go back to chapter 4, and you look again at verse 45. It says, So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem, that's 2, 23 and 24, at the feast, where they had also gone to the feast. So they welcome him on the basis of his miracles. If he were just a traveler walking through the region, they wouldn't even have paid any attention to him. But they said, oh, that's the guy that was performing those miracles down in Jerusalem during the feast. That's why they welcome him. Now, and they believe on him to a certain degree. Notice the difference between the people in Galilee and the people in Samaria. Look up at uh, chapter 4 and verse 40, for example. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. They received him. They welcomed him. And he stayed with them. And many more believed because of his own what? Word. you see that? They receive him because of his word. They believe on him because of his word. But the Galileans believe on him because of the signs. There's a difference. The one group, the Samaritans who believe his word, are saved. The Galileans who believe on him in a sort of superficial way are just curious. You know, they want to see what he can, what he can do. So, what happens is he goes there and they welcome him and then verse 46 says this. So, Jesus came to Cana. Remember, that's where he turned water into wine. Of Galilee where he had made water, water wine. And there was a certain noble man whose son was sick at Capernaum. And the verb here was sick, means he had been sick for a long time. Uh, Capernaum is about 20 miles from Canaan. So evidently, this man is a noble man which means he is a governmental official. The word means royal. He's a royal official. He either represents King Herod uh, or you know, the Roman government. We don't know which, but he has, he has a, an elite status. He's a man of authority. And the man's got a problem. And the problem is he's got a son who was sick, and he wasn't getting any better. So the man seeks a solution. So the man has a problem. The man seeks a solution. Look at verse 47. And when he had heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him. Well, what makes him come to Jesus? Because word had spread that Jesus was what? A miracle worker. And somehow the word had spread. People were coming back from the feast, and they, you know, some of them stopped in Cana, some of them stopped in Capernaum. Word spread. Hey, you want to see what was going on down in Jerusalem? And this man says, Well, my son is sick. I need something. So the man takes the initiative. He walks the 20 miles, comes to Cana, and approaches Jesus. And uh, 
very important because this man, as far as we know, has never met Jesus. He's an outsider. He's made no commitment to Jesus. And it's a, an indication that no matter, no matter who you are, you can approach Jesus with your problems. And that's what this man does. And we're going to discover a lot of people do that. When they get desperate, they may not know anything about Jesus, but they've heard about Jesus. They watch Benny Hinn. Isn't that right? And they're desperate. What do they do when they're desperate? I'm talking about desperate. When you've gone to all the doctors and the doctor says there's nothing else, what do you do? You go to Benny Hinn. And that's not so outlandish. You might think it's outlandish until it's your son or daughter or your mother or father who gets sick. You know, you'll call up every prayer line there is in America. You know, you'll do whatever it takes. And this man is, has a desperate situation. And he's not theologically astute. You say, well, I wouldn't do that. I know that that's not... Well, guess what? You're in church. This man's not a church person. <laughs> so he's desperate. So he said, that's a desperate situation. So he comes to Jesus, and he implored him in verse 47. That means repeatedly begged him to come down, which speaks about elevation. Uh, Capernaum is low, 700 feet below sea level type thing, you know. Uh, to come down and heal his son. So he begs him repeatedly. Now look at the reason for all this. Verse 47. For, because, he, that's the son, was at the point of death. So here's a man who's absolutely desperate. He's a man of great authority. He's a man, a royal official. He's an elitist, and guess what he does? He basically uh, cast aside his pride because the elites had nothing to do with common people, and Jesus was very common. He was a poor person. He was a laborer before he became a preacher. And he cast his pride aside, and he comes, and he pleads, he begs, with this carpenter-turned-preacher miracle worker to come and heal his son. You have to see this. This is, this is a man who's absolutely... Desperate. This is a man who has got great power. He has power and authority over life and death. He says a word, someone lives. He says a word, someone dies. And now his son is on the verge of death, and he doesn't have the power to do anything about it. And so he comes to the one who does have power. I've, look, I've ministered. When I was back in Baltimore, I ministered in a group called the Baltimore Breakfast Group. And I ministered to up-and-outers. These were people who you would call the elitist. In, in the Baltimore area, socially elite, economically elite, and uh, when things were going fine, they never thought of Christ, but guess what? When things were going bad, they heard about a little group of people who prayed in downtown Baltimore every Saturday morning at 7 o'clock, and suddenly, guess what they would do? They would show up, because they were desperate. And we're talking about, you know, people like, you know, the mayor of the city. We're talking about the controller for the state of Maryland. We're talking about council generals from other countries that would come to these things. And uh, because when you're desperate uh, and there are life and death situations, there's nothing these people can do, even with all their power, all their money. All their status, they can do absolutely nothing. So when they're desperate, 
problems. They take desperate measures. This man takes a desperate measure, cast aside his pride, he comes to the carpenter turned preacher, turned miracle man. So he begs. That's what happens in verse 47. He begs. He implores over and over again. Hey, come, 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 come. Try to get Jesus. Come on, come on. Now look at Jesus' response. Unbelievable response. <clears throat> then Jesus said to him, unless you, and it's plural, unless all of you, you people, mine has people in there, but it's, it's unless all of you see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The guy says, help me. My son's dying, and guess what Jesus does? He looks at the man, but he speaks to the whole crowd. He says, you know your problem? Your problem is unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. That's not a very nice response. If I come and say, help me, I would expect you to do what? Help me or say something. You know, what's your problem? Well, yeah, I say, what's your problem? But Jesus turns around and says, you know, your problem is you guys want to see signs and wonders. This would be like a house burning down. And you call out the fireman who has the solution, and he says, you know the problem with you people, you just don't have fire alarms. <laughs> you need to have fire extinguishing. This is no time for a lecture, is it? What's going on with Jesus? He starts lecturing. And this is what happens, and it's an amazing story as far as I can see. So um, Jesus starts going into a rant. That's <laughs> what saves me anyway. Uh, of course, I see things differently than most religious people. You know. I see Jesus here going into a rant, and, he's, and he says this. He says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will, and look at this next phrase, you will not or you will by no means believe. That's a double negative. You know, in English, a double negative makes a positive. In Greek, a double negative makes it really an emphasis on negative. So he says, you know the problem with you? You won't believe. I'm talking about... Under no circumstances will you believe. So Jesus is really getting angry over this whole thing. It's sort of a rant. See? So that's what's happening here. Uh, he's saying, you know what you want? You want signs and wonders, and then you'll believe. It's like the 4th of July. You know, you go out to a 4th of July display, you go out there for one reason. You know, you want your senses to be satisfied. And here comes a big one. You go, oh! And there's no, oh! You know? And there's one, ah, that one. See, it's all about us. We want, these, we want to be... You know, yeah, sense something. And then he says, that's what you're hunting for before you'll believe. And uh, Jesus doesn't perform miracles in order to uh, put on some show. He does it in order to meet needs. And this is bo always bothers Jesus. Uh, for Jesus, signs are not intended to produce faith. Signs are intended to confirm the faith. And there's a big difference between producing faith and confirming faith. Faith comes by what? Comes through the ear. Faith comes through hearing. See? Faith comes through hearing. Not through seeing. I won't believe until I see the wounds in his side, Thomas said. And Jesus said, you know, Thomas, you believe because you've seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen, yet still believe. So faith is produced through the word. That's why the Samaritan's faith is genuine faith, because they believe his word. Here the Galileans want to see a sign. 
once you believe His Word, many times God will then give you a sign to confirm and strengthen your faith. But not the other way around. See? So, Jesus goes into this tirade about signs. I don't know how you would feel, but if I were the nobleman, I would be very frustrated, and evidently he is, because look what he says in verse 49. He interrupts Jesus' little speech. And the nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies! Exclamation point. You see that? He's not concerned with the theology of signs. In fact, you know something? This man's not concerned with any theology. This man doesn't know theology from any other theology. Right? His only concern is his child. And if you look at what he says, he says, Sir, come before, before it's too late. You're ranting and raving and you're talking and you're teaching a lesson like a rabbi. My son's dying. If you don't get here, he's going to die. You need to come before it's too late. And he uses the word child, which in this case in the Greek speaks of a child who's probably under three years of age. A toddler. Okay? An infant or a toddler. So the father breaks in and he says there's an urgency here. No time to discuss the importance of sinology. Uh, and the man's like a drowning man who's just clinging on to hope. I just, if I can just get this guy's attention, I can grab him and get him over there, everything will be okay. okay? So I know what this is like. I know this desperation because when I was at the University of Baltimore playing baseball, uh, <clears throat> my goal was to uh, play professional baseball. I had scouts coming out to see me play, and I hurt my arm. Uh, in a day when they didn't have MRIs, and the only way they could tell what was wrong with you was exploratory surgery. And I was, you know, a 20-year-old kid. I was afraid of dying. The doctor said, we have to put you on the operating table. I couldn't do that. I was scared to death, literally. And so I turned to Olga. Olga Warhol, a Russian mystic psychic healer. Because I... My mother had read a book about Olga and her psychic powers. And uh, when I was healthy, I remember this, my mother said, hey, you ought to read this book. I said, what's it about? She said, it's about some psychic healer. And I said, oh, psychic schmikic, and I don't care about it. I wasn't religious, couldn't care about anything. I was just a baseball player. And then I hurt my arm. And there was no hope. And in an act of desperation, I said, where's that book, Mom? Where, where's all the work out of, you know? And I ended up going to Olga. That's how desperate I was. You said, that's stupid. Well, that's what desperate people do. Desperate people do desperate things. And so this father, you know, not knowing much about Jesus, except that he's a miracle healer, uh, cries out for help. And he gets Jesus' attention, finally. And what does Jesus do? Look at verse 50. Jesus said to him, I love this one, go your way. How do you like that? If I stopped right there in the sentence, it would be really bad, wouldn't it? Go your way. But look what else he says. Your son lives. Um, you know, very interesting. Remember Mary? Um, Mary says they run out of wine. What does Jesus do? He starts going to a theological track. He says, my hour hasn't come. Blah, 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 blah. Remember that? And then finally she says, you know, whatever he said, just do it. And she gets him to finally do something. And so when he gets into his theological little discussion, uh, she finally says, Jesus, hey, we run out of wine here. 
and whatever he did. And then, then Jesus acts and he does something. Man comes to Jesus, guess what? Jesus goes into another theological triad, just like in chapter 2. Finally, the man gets his attention again, and Jesus does something. He acts. But what does he, how does he do it? He says, go your way, your son lives. Now, if you're the father, what are you going to be thinking? I've come here, I've asked the man to go get my, help my son who's dying. When you get there, it's 20 miles away. And he says, go on, your son lives. How would you feel? Would you be confused? What do you mean my son lives? Would you be angry? Who is this guy? Come on! You're fooling around talking to these people. Like, we have to get on the road here. You know, what are you... Would you be confident? Oh, well, he said he lives. I'm just going to go. You know, how would you feel in this situation? Now, today we would say, well, let me find out. Uh, any news on my son? They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have email, no text, you know. So what's this guy going to do in light of this? Now, if I'm the father and he said that, I would, I would probably say, well, can, can you at least pray for him? Can, can we pray before I get one? You, know, you can do that, right? Or you'd say, well, no, I, I'm just not going to go. You're going to have to come with me, buddy. I've got some friends, and they're going to drag you if you don't, you know, if you don't come. What are you going to do? Uh, maybe you said, well, can you give me a sign that he's healed? It's all about signs. Maybe the father could have said, hey, give me a sign, then I'll believe and I'll go. I'll know that you should be. Maybe you do the sign, you do the miracle here, I'll say, well, maybe you do the miracle there. What does the father do? Look what he does. Verse 50. He said, the man believed what? The word. Do you see that? Now, this is a man like the Samaritans. Look, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. <clears throat> Mary said, whatever he says to you, do it. Believe his word and do it. This man also believes his word. Real faith. So the man starts walking a 20-mile journey back to Capernaum, and just think of the implication. I don't know what that 20-mile walk was like, but I can imagine. Every doubt, every thought would be going through my mind. What happens if I get there and my son's not healed? I mean, everybody that knows me knows I'm a man of elite status. I'm a man of authority. They're going to make, I'm going to be the laughing stock of the town. They're going to say there's no fool like a rich fool. No fool like a, you know, old fool or whatever the situation is. And uh, I'm going to be, you know, they're going to lose respect. I'm going to be pitied. You know, anything that you can think of. But... On the other hand, as Tevi would say, on the one hand, but on the other hand, if he's right, it'll be worth it. <laughs> so he just keeps on trudging, you know, not knowing what to expect when he gets there. Now, <clears throat> I don't know what you would do, but I know that was how I would be thinking. So then in verse 51, we have this. And as he was now going down, <clears throat> meaning toward Capernaum, his servants met him and told him, saying, your son lives. <clears throat> and they told him. That means they told him over and over again. Hey, guess what? You're not going to believe this. Your son's alive. Hey, did you, you can't believe it. He's, he's up and about. Repeatedly, they just, I imagine this moment for this man had to be so exciting. I imagine they were laughing. They were jumping. They were crying. They were shouting hallelujah. They were, you know, dancing. They come out and they tell this man, 
and it's an exciting situation. Uh, by the way, who tells the man that his son lives? The servants. The only ones that saw the miracle of the water turning in the wine were the servants, who as they carried the ladle, saw the water changing the wine. And here it's the servants who see the miracle. This man doesn't see the miracle. It's the servants who saw the miracle. And so the man has to inquire. Look in verse 52. And when he inquired of them the hour when he got better, they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Not uh, he started getting better. He got totally better. It was gone at the seventh hour. So the father knew it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. So the kid is healed instantly um, by long distance. <clears throat> now watch this. <clears throat> and he himself believed and his whole household. Now, <clears throat> We have two results here. We have a temporal result of the son being healed, and you have an eternal result of the man in his household getting saved, right? having eternal life. And from what we can tell, this becomes the first messianic community in the city of Capernaum. This man and his household are saved, and they have put their faith in Jesus, and this becomes, quote, in a sense, the first church in the city of Capernaum. Um, then verse 54 says, and it was a home church, by the way, says, this again is the second sign that Jesus did when he came out of Judea in the Galilee, meaning the first one being water in the water. Okay? That's a great story, isn't it? So now let me give you a little, just a little different perspective. Uh, let's look at the story from the standpoint of the man's faith. Okay? Now notice in verses 46 through 49, we're going to call this crisis faith. It's a form of faith. The man hears about Jesus, he's got a crisis, and he comes to Jesus. The man's crisis faith. Look at verse 50. Look at that. We'll call this the man's confident faith. Jesus said, go your way, your son lives. And the man believed, and he went his way. Crisis faith, confident faith. Now look at verse 51 to 53. We have a confirmed faith. They said, your son lives. The kid is healed. So we have a crisis faith. We have a confident faith. Now we have a confirmed faith. Notice the miracle confirmed the faith. You see that? It wasn't the miracle first and then the faith. It's the faith up in verse 50. And then we have the miracle confirms the faith. It's a confirmed faith. And then at the end of verse 53, we see it's a converting faith. And he himself believed. Now, by the way, that's the second time he believed, wasn't it? He believed up in verse 50. So the man believed the word of Jesus. That was about the healing. Okay. But then we have he believes again, and this time it's not that he believes about the healing because the son's already healed. Now he believes on Jesus as the Messiah. So it's a converting faith. And then notice it's a contagious faith at the end of 53. And his whole household 
the family said, well, what in the world happened? So let me tell you the story. I went there to Canaan, and I met this guy, Jesus, and he tells the whole story, and here's the result, and now the whole household is saved. It's a contagious thing. So I'm convinced these are the stages that most people who are outside the church experience. We have a crisis phase. Either somebody's sick or we're going through a divorce or whatever the situation is. We know right now that more people are converted as a result of going through a crisis than any other situation. It's not until you're desperate that you sort of turn to Jesus. So we have this crisis faith. There's a, uh, an inventory called the, uh, I think it's called the, the Homes Raise Inventory. And it just talks about you know the crises that people go through. And most people come to Christ through a crisis. So we have crisis faith. And then you have a confident faith. They come to church and they hear the word and they actually believe it. And that's an element of faith. It's not total faith, but it's they start hearing the gospel. They keep coming back to the church and they get confident. And then it's confirmed. You know, things begin to change in their life. And they realize that this is this faith is confirmed. And then they're converted. It's converting faith. The person actually does sell out to Jesus. And they're so excited they start telling others. It's a contagious faith. And so here we have this process in this man's life that we see, we see repeated. Next week we'll look at how Jesus heals the man by the pool of Bethesda. And that's where the man is paralyzed and thinks that he needs an angel to stir the water in order to be healed. And uh, Jesus heals him without stirring the water. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this Sunday school lesson. When we see something like this, we realize that absolutely nothing is impossible. When we think about you 2,000 years ago in one place, performing a miracle at distance, and now we think about you having shed your spirit, the spirit of Christ, abroad. You are with us wherever we go. Uh, it should be so much easier for us to believe today and trust you for miracles and healings in our lives and making commitments to you and telling others about you. Oh Lord, may these passages like this strengthen our faith. May we be better believers and people today because of a passage like this. More trusting in you, realizing that you're trustworthy. When we see a passage like this, may our faith be confirmed. In Christ's name, amen.